Welcome everyone to the fourth episode of Interop Talk, where we discuss new developments happening in the interoperability space. I'm Dave Castle, Senior Vice President of Customer Success at Health Gorilla and former Executive Director at Cure Quality. I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Lane, Chief Medical Officer at Health Gorilla and former Director of Clinical Informatics and Interoperability at Sutter Health. Devin McGraw is here, Data Sharing Lead at Invite and former Deputy Director for Health Information Privacy at HHS. And we also have Jennifer Blumenthal, another regular contributor who is Director of Products, One Record at Milliman in Telescript. We also have a special guest today who will probably be familiar to many viewers, that being Brendan Keeler, Head of Products at Flexpa, also known for his Substack Health at API Guy. He began his career at Epic, where actually he and I crossed over for a couple of years, at least before I, I departed on to Care Quality. And Brendan has also worked at Zeus Health and Redox. So welcome, Brendan. The clear topic of the week here in the health IT world has been the February 13th announcement of the six entities that have been approved for onboarding as potential QHANs for the qualified or qualified health information networks. I should define the acronym under the TEFCA ecosystem. These groups were announced in DC and they were EPIC, Commonwealth Health Alliance, eHealth Exchange, No2, Kanza, and also Health Gorilla. I was there along with a, a sizable group from Health Gorilla. It was a, a great experience. I believe, Devin, I don't believe, I know you were there because spoke with you <laughs> so what was there as it was well. several days ago who remembers what they did two yeah, days yeah, ago? That's, that, that, that's true and jen brendan i'm sure you were familiar with the event as well i don't want to focus over much on on that event per se although interested in one specific area of it where we can start our conversation today and that is the perspectives that were offered by the federal agencies it, it actually the the sort of long line of federal agency representatives who presented what was to me one of the more interesting aspects of that whole ceremony because it showed the interest that the federal agencies have in the QHAN ecosystem with that I will step out of the way and interested in the thoughts that others on the panel have about the federal agencies and the perspectives they offered on the importance to them of that announcement on Monday. Yeah, I'm happy to comment, Dave. I was really impressed by the positive enthusiasm that was being shown by all the agencies that got up and spoke, and particularly CDC and VA really speaking to how this is just right up their alley, that they are looking forward to this. The VA comment that, that this was really a veteran-centric initiative, that Dr. Walensky's comments about how much the CDC wants to see this move forward, because from my perspective, it hasn't been exactly clear how much CDC was going to participate initially. I see CDC as one of the really most powerful levers that we're going to have in terms of incentivizing and encouraging the use of TEFCA exchange. We've heard about how maybe CMS is going to do something, maybe ONC will be able to do th something, but to have these other federal agencies come forward and say, yeah, we're going to support this, we're going to utilize this, we're going to incentivize this was very exciting. Yeah, I think it's a real testament actually to Mickey Tripathi's leadership in making sure that the TEPCA kind of got back on the list of priorities around interoperability and to really doing an amazing job of socializing it within the Department of Health and Human Services, all of the different agencies, as well as with the VA. Interoperability has been a popular topic among across administrations, particularly at the cabinet level, but for the for folks to coalesce around around TEFCA as a real viable solution and to be committed to it and to again have all of those luminaries in the same room talking about it 
is quite a big deal. I would agree with that. I think it's going to need it too. It's still voluntary. It's still voluntary. And I think that to Devin's point, it was mothballed. It was aggressively and intentionally mothballed during the last admin. So to pull this off the shelf, this it's been stagnant. People don't know about it. People have this like hesitancy around it. And then say, hey, we're going to move to this. We're going to move from care quality and come or build this network of networks. You need, and it's going to be voluntary though, you need a lot of support from different angles. And I think, yeah, it's just cool. It's cool as people imagine the use cases beyond where we start and how they can use it to help their, the different constituencies they represent or advocate for. I think it shows some of the weaknesses with the other parts of Cures Act that have gone live and are operational to an extent. I think it just shows you that networks, the network effect. So I think that was exciting. I liked the opening after Mickey talking about the analogy of cellular networks. I think I agree with Devin and Brendan is Mickey really was like sitting there waiting to get his hands on Kafka and then he got his hands on it. And now you see the fruits of that labor, right? Yeah, I think that that's accurate. But I, I chuckled there when you mentioned the cell phone networks because I remember circa 2015 on the early care quality circuit using exactly that analogy for care quality as well. I think um, I remember you using that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 yeah, the, the thing that actually really struck me on seeing that that sort of parade of federal agencies, if you will, was the part of the real value proposition of QHIN is going to be that raised bar, that stamp of government approval that gives the green lights, if you will, to other federal agencies to actually participate, to rely on it. I can understand from the federal agency perspective, looking at it now in hindsight, why there was be so much hesitation to just deem care equality or deem Commonwealth or deem anybody else as the winner, if you will, both because that has an impact obviously on, on the private sector and the organizations involved, but also because it, you don't actually know if you've made the right choice. So on the one hand, I think behind the scenes, some of us have spoken at times over the years since the Cures Act's passed about the re-engineering and potentially the fact that this is doing some similar things to, to care equality, but at the end of the day, it really highlighted for me the additional value proposition that really is there for the Tefka ecosystem and this prospective QHAN network. In, in terms of it being something that federal agencies can get behind, can incentivize, can participate in themselves. I think that's really a hugely important point for the overall value of the TEFCA. You know what surprised me? What well, wasn't a surprise because obviously I've been tracking this very closely, but I thought somebody else was going to jump out from the wings is I think one of our earlier podcasts, we talked about names have been dropped in the hat. And I knew six were going to be announced because a little birdie told me, but I was surprised at the other organizations who couldn't seem to submit for whatever reason. And I'm so curious to find out when the second round will be and how soon after. Is it going to be a year from now? Is it going to be February 14th, 2024? I do think that this first round of applicants really get to set the market and set the tone for the next year and the years after that. So that's going to be something I want to track as we go through the next year. Yeah, the statement, Jennifer, has been that there aren't going to be rounds, that it's just, it's open application. Rolling. Yeah. It, again, a lot was put onto this quote first set and just the publicity around it. But, and I don't know, I have no inside knowledge from either high tech or any of the other bodies that I'm involved in, but I, I can only imagine that there are others that are working their way through the process. Having seen what the application process looked like and what it entailed, it wouldn't surprise me if there are folks that are still waiting on their, their security certification or other pieces of the puzzle that they need to put together to, to officially come forward.
That's interesting. I didn't know that. I actually thought it was going to be this is the first round before we start reviewing more because that puts a lot of work on the both Sequoia and Care Quality to be constantly rolling applications like that. It does. I actually think that there were seven and they were Eagles fans that couldn't get up in time. As a Philadelphia <laughs> Eagle fan, it was a pretty devastating morning. Oh. But it's interesting, right? Cerner, where what's going on? They were in had their hat in the ring. And then there's Commonwealth, which is a major pre previous entryway for an implementer for Cerner. So I think round round two or the, the subsequent add-ons are going to be really interesting because that was a big whoa what's going on there yeah there's some other vendors that i was anticipating that have been quiet for a while yeah i think it, it was one thing that may be playing out with some folks i, I won't name any specific names but other vendors who may have made noises at different points. You may have noticed in some of the announcements, they, they mentioned Epic and kept it simple by calling it Epic during the award ceremony, if you will. But the there there does seem to have been a subsidiary that was created there based on, I think it was an ONC blog post that came out that actually named the entity. And I, I do wonder if some of the other vendors may be having similar deliberations to the ones that led Epic to go down that path in terms of whether their parent company should be the one taking on that government oversight and all the responsibilities that fall with the common agreement. It is a really interesting point, Dave, insofar as all of the companies that have come forward as candidate Q-Hins are themselves HINs. They're all nationwide networks that are doing business today and presumably will continue to do business today that I don't think that we anticipate that any of them will wholesale on one day, bring all of their network participants on as QIN participants, that there's going to be this period of transition. And as Brendan said, we don't know how quick it's going to go. We don't know how quickly people are going to flock to this opportunity. As we discussed in DC, for the treatment purpose, what is the marginal benefit for somebody who's already exchanging for treatment on the current framework to transition to doing that on the QHIN framework, or the TEFCA framework, I should say. And Matt Doyle from Epic suggested that they were going to really encourage their customers to, to move on to Tefka Exchange, but I'm really curious what all of you think. What is that process going to look like for treatment-based exchange for these six six networks that are already doing that in the current framework? I think it's a really good question, and I think I don't. It it shouldn't obviously to connect to make sure that these networks are connected to one another in order to facilitate the vision of the single on-ramp and then connection to everyone who's connected to any particular QN and the QNs that are connected to each other, like the promise of that, given that treatment is already a pretty well-established use case might be, it, it probably makes sense to press on that and just get the data flowing for those purposes, but it's not the it's not what I think people are super excited about. It's definitely in terms of what TEFCA will bring. It's definitely not what I'm super excited about. We didn't need TEFCA to expand treatment exchange. We had national networks that were exchanging. We have, we still have national networks exchanging for treatment. It's all of the other use cases that for which there has been a huge amount of stickiness and resistance. And that is really the promise of TEFCA. I think now that we have QHINs that have stepped up and agreed to exchange for all the purposes for which, or at least to facilitate that, I think it's going to be, I think that's the piece that, that I think is most interesting to grapple with is how do we layer on those use cases? It was supposed to be individual access was supposed to come at the same time as treatment. Not clear 
that's going to happen. We could spend hours talking about that, I'm sure. But it's, it is just, it's a voluntary network. There definitely is a bit of hesitancy to pile too much on for fear of scaring people away. And that's both the reality of creating a voluntary network and also somewhat unfortunate because, you know, what you ideally want to do and what I was super excited about when they first announced that individual access was going to be one of the first use cases is that everybody wants to exchange for treatment. Is it enough of a value proposition that you get a really good solid set of connections for treatment that you're willing as a participant to allow your data to then be queried for all sorts of other use cases, whereas ordinarily you'd want a lot more control over the data that's being shared in those other use cases. And I don't know the answer to that. I was smiling about something else, but now I'm going to change the topic real quick and then come back. Go for it. it. (laughs) You know, what's unclear to me, this is more to what Stephen was saying was Stephen said that Matt Doyle said that they're going to encourage their customers to transition to their QHIN. It's unclear to me for this year what the anticipated amount of organizations or participants each applicant QHIN will plan to enroll. So maybe Health Gorilla has an idea of how many organizations they plan to enroll, Kanza, No2, et cetera. Well, we know historically, I love Paul and Liz at Commonwealth. There are many vendors at Commonwealth who don't have all their clients enrolled in the Commonwealth network. So I'd like to get a sense of for this testing period, how many organizations participants will be enrolled. And I'd like to see what that those participants look like. What do they make up? Are they the progressive provider organizations? Are they not provider organizations? And then going back to the part about patient access, you know, the that's going to be the interesting part, right? And the premise, which I thought was pretty solid, which is if you participate, if you become a Tefka participant, you join a QHIN for Tefka Exchange, that you are declaring that you will respond to patient access queries. I don't think there's any question about that. Oh, yes, there is. Yes, there is. Let's go there. Yeah, no, the common, basically the way the agreements seem to be shaping up is so subject to local policy. Gigantic hole. In an, yeah, so you can sign up for Tefka Exchange and agree to exchange for those purposes and then have a local policy that sets the bar super high for when that data is exchanged for individual access. And I think, again, all this stuff is still being worked through, but no, there's a, there's language subject to, to local policies. Like state Uh, policy? No, local participant policy. A participant. Me as a data holder, me as a data participant. I'm a provider. Let's work it through. I'm a provider. I'm doing, whether or not I'm doing exchange today, I sign on with a QHIN. Maybe my HR vendor, maybe somebody else. And I say, I'm going to do Tefka Exchange. And I want to do it for treatment. And then you're saying, but I could have a policy that says, but I don't want to respond to IAS. I don't know if it can be that bold. I think it might be something more along the lines of, I will respond to IAS under the following conditions. And then the conditions are ones that are hard to meet in an, in some sort of automated way. Are these so, technical conditions you're thinking, like kind of some of the stuff that's wearing its head at care quality right now? I've heard things okay. like include the local patient ID in the query request. And like, how are you going to get that for each site you might send to? Like that's That would be nuts. And so if they're imposing sort of matching criteria that are, that effectively make it impossible then yeah, I think that's the, uh, to Devin's point, I've heard something along those lines. I just kind of wonder if all this in-flight, we talked about all the departments, all these agencies that are looking at this and saying, I, I want to encourage this. And we hear, we know ONC has that proposed rule that's going to nudge data sharing, and maybe some Tefka things. We know the CMS has Tefka language that they're floating to push things along. I wonder if those nudges might 
actually include patient access because I agree with everyone. If we don't have patient access, we don't have individual access services, then did we just do this so we could overlay direct trust and have push on the same network as query for treatment? Because fine, that's nice and sweet, but that, yeah, individual access is where the unlock is. And you have to imagine that the departments are on top of that or smart enough to nudge it towards the outcome they want. I think there's some conversations happening at care quality right now that I'm really unhappy with. And I have expressed that publicly to people in those work groups. And it lends to what Devin's pointing out. It's in my mind, you, there are some roadblocks, but these roadblocks are being created and we're already driving down the street. And that could be an issue potentially. I thought when you first brought this up that you were talking about early issues with state HIEs saying that they're not going to respond to individual access because of their contracts and their contracts won't permit them. I didn't realize you were thinking more about the prescriptiveness that could be dictated to anyone querying under patient requests. So that's an interesting thing to think about. And that's, <clears throat> Jennifer, I realize this was a little bit of a side note in what you just said there, but that was an interesting statement you made about the HIEs and I'm not intending to pick on HIEs per se, but the fact that their contracts won't allow them to do that, I don't know, and I'm interested in others' thoughts on whether that's actually a valid excuse. This is a Devin, this is a Devin thing. She knows all about this. I'm not gonna talk about it at all. It's one of It's one of many places where some additional leveraging of, of existing authorities among the different players at HHS is going to be really important. Initially, ONC, when specifically asked the question about business associate agreements and whether language and business associate agreements could make it infeasible for an HIE business associate to share for individual access, they gave this what I thought was a very confusing answer that one could decide to interpret whatever way one wanted to, which is, oh, we're not going to make you violate your business associate agreements, but you can't count on your business associate agreement. If that business associate agreement is discriminatory in terms of allowing access, then you can't allow that to happen. And then they gave this example of discrimination, which was much more not discrimination by type of purpose of access, but more one of you can't, if your business associate agreement for some reason said, you can share with everybody but Sutter, you couldn't rely on your business associate agreement to get you out of something that was that blatantly discriminatory in terms of how you could respond. But I think I know a lot of HIEs looked at that language and said, our business associate agreements don't currently allow us to do this. We think that ONC has clearly told us we don't have to violate our business associate agreements. And frankly, OCR, which ultimately needs to be the ultimate arbiter of this issue has been quiet about it. And, and actually in their proposed rule that came out just at the very beginning of the Biden administration, January 20th, inauguration day, lended credence to that interpretation. It basically said, yeah, you know, the business associate is the one is what controls here in terms of the individual right of access. So there's a lot that's been layered on. You know, I frankly don't think that's consistent with the Cures Act. I think Congress was very clear that HIEs are actors and that there's a set of expectations on them and you can't, you shouldn't allow entities to contract themselves out of a federal legal obligation. But we are going to need for the regulators to actually say all of that in order for some of those obstacles to come down. Basically, the interpretation that I've Devin, come you up said with. that this was being worked through. Where, where, where is it being worked through? Who are we waiting for to work through this? I think some of the parameters around TEFCA and the and how individual access will happen, both from a technical and policy standpoint, that's sort of part of common agreement, part of these underlying policies and procedures and implementation guides that are rapidly being released for comment in addition to whatever conversations are going on that care care, at, at the care quality level at the, and at other levels that are highly influential on 
or seem to be highly influential. They are. On where Tefka lands. And it's not entirely clear to me. It just feels like we don't, we're getting, those of us who are huge proponents of individual access are getting asked to just be satisfied with whatever morsels are being thrown our way and to work around it. And I just don't, I, it's extraordinarily frustrating that some of these other policy levers are, are not setting the table for us in a bit of a better way, much less clearing up some of the liability questions that legitimately I think some do have around the intersection between HIPAA and the security rule and the privacy rule and how they exchange for a whole host of of reasons through APIs and through TEFCA. I think Devin's right. Like I talk to Devin a lot. I talk to Kristen and Joe Bewell a lot. There aren't that many organizations that have been pursuing patient access or individual access services in the document query landscape for that long. There's very few, you guys know this, I don't need to get on my soapbox about one record, but it's very hard. And this actually happened during the early fire implementation guide development. You had a bunch of people getting together within care quality, not outside care quality making assumptions on how patient access should work in the fire IG for care quality. And it didn't take into account the reality. You're seeing that again now with the IAS workflow where everyone's like, yeah, let's get this out the door. We want this approved. We want this moving. We want people querying, but there's other voices in the room that are commenting and using their weight to determine what the workflows look like from a, both a policy and technical perspective and the technical and policies Neither of them make sense. They do not reflect anything that is live today. They're coming up with new workflows that aren't going to work and they're going to be hard to implement. And they also, at the end of the day, they hurt the consumer and they're going to drive costs up for queries. And that will lower the adoption rate, in my opinion. So there are things that are happening in rooms that if people don't join those conversations and get loud about it, they're going to get adopted and recommended, and then they're going to be made the standard. And that is potentially dangerous for IAS. And this is, we're at the brink right now. We're at this moment where IAS could be like a real thing, right? Like it could actually happen. There could be the ability for you to use any app of your choice and use your demographics to query, to get your data the same way providers do. But there are there's room for interpretation from compliance and legals officers. There's also technical and interop standards people who just have a standards hat on at all times and won't take into account what this looks like in a production app. And I think that could really kill IAS and its impact it could have. And I, I want to have actually kind of two, one follow-up and then a branch off of that, what you just said there, Jen. The, you mentioned the rooms that people need to be in and cue the Hamilton music, I guess, but can you be specific? Like, I, where be, should, where, if, so, I, don't, I, I don't want to call anybody out, but at the same time, I'll if people want people to out. be part of this conversation, what room should they try to get into? So the, can anyone come to a care quality work group meeting? Yeah, it's open, right? Or did I make that? I believe so, yeah, I think that's okay. still the policy. So the meetings I'm thinking about right now is there is an update to how patient requests will work within care quality that's calling for on top of IAL. So just think about it, an MFA plus an identity proofing event, but they should be linked together and should be provided by the CSP. This creates an issue for when you log into one record, we go through MFA, but you don't just, you can log in and you might not end up going through an identity proof event right away. You might be going through an OAuth workflow to get your data. And then maybe you want to go through an IAL2 event. It's make, it's creating the assumption that any third-party app is going to first do an IAL2 event before anything. That is very invasive. We built our first application like that. We pushed people through an identity proofing event. And why would somebody give you all this information to potentially not even get data back in the query, right? And there's the cost to that. 
The second part of that is there's this there's loose definitions of tokens in this workflow that are not as defined as you see within the fire spec. And these tokens, they're saying, we're only going to use maybe a 30 minute token. So you have 30 minutes after the identity proofing event to query and get your data. That means no refreshing of that data. That person is going to have to essentially go through another event. That is, I won't tolerate that. It is, it should be at least akin to 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, what we're seeing on the fire side. And I think a lot of people are concerned about somebody identity proofing, and then it's not them the second time upon return or things of that sort. And these conversations are happening, and I'm giving you a non-technical description. This is how my brain thinks about it and organizes it. And it takes people like myself or Be Well or Devin to stand up and say, hey, this is not going to work for people to listen. And how many times do three people need to get angry to get the right workflow so that the whole nation can benefit from getting their data? I can't be the patient access soapbox queen for much longer. I'm getting a little old here. There's the sort of morality and ethical play that we're, like has been prevalent, but the bigger thing as a Currently, I'm a Tefka voyeur, right? Like, I'm, I'm Flexpa is not involved in Tefka or in care quality. But having been at Zeus, I've been at Redox. I know, I know these discussions, and I hear a lot of things, and I get asked a lot of questions. And the current thing is, there's no paved road for individual access. So the other alternative is that people turn a blind eye to the abuse that's happening around the edges of these networks. There's absolutely, yeah. unequivocally, people who are like, I have a single provider on staff. Let me sell that data. There are people that are secondary using their way to give data away. And that is the wrong path. That is unequivocally the wrong path. And if, when choosing the point of friction or non-available path, people will choose that. And that's so, and the, the people that are doing that regulatory arbitrage, they're living to live in the gray zone right now. They're going to get caught and stamped out, but someone else is going to join their place. So as long as we don't have this IAS, as long as we don't have this available, it's going to continue to happen, this abuse. This, and that abuse lends itself to other abuses that are unacceptable, period, full stop. And Brendan, what you're referring to is people using the treatment purpose in lieu, which is acceptable, in lieu of a patient-directed query. They, I don't even think they know they're abusing it sometimes. They say, no. oh, I know some know. <laughs> I don't know that all know. Some say, okay, there's this use case and there's this provider involved and there's kind of one diagnosis that generated and they, they lull themselves into thinking that stream and so that they can provide this service. And I think that there's some goal for a lot of them to provide a valuable patient service or uh, push forward something, but for some not. And I, I think that without a, a paved path that is easy, not easier, but easy and condoned, people are gonna continue to find these mental gym, gymnastics to do, to offer some this thing and to, potentially make some money by that regulatory arbitrage by living in the gray zone. And I think that's I think what up. I was saying. I think what I was saying is, a, is a, you're right. What you're saying. What I was saying is right now we are really close to the finish line on individual access. The problem is how long does someone have to go get their data after an identity proofing event has happened? And there are gates or bridges or walls, whatever coming down right now, protect against the use case you're describing, which is where people are abusing individual access, that we've already seen the abuse, but under a treatment query. Where I'm concerned right now is we're really close, but there is conversations that if other people don't step in and engage and give their opinion, only a small group of people are going to decide the future of this workflow. And that's where people need to be, is in the room, more people talking about this. And it needs to be a conversation of all the EHR vendors, it should, there should be CSPs, there should be consumer, direct to consumer, maybe B to C to B, whatever you want should be there. But there's not enough voices. There's too many pure standards people interpreting specs and not thinking about what does the whole workflow look like end to end where you as a user go to query to get your data. Yeah, and I think, uh, Jenny, to your point, we only have ourselves to blame if we we aren't there. The, it's a question of of finding the time for more folks to prioritize. So they do what 
want to pivot from there to the second point that I mentioned a little while back that I wanted to react to. You, you also stated that this could be, there's an opportunity, at least you implied, there's an opportunity for this to actually be, be in the end positive and to advance the ball on, on IAS and for that matter on, on other non-treatment use cases. What do we do to make that, what, let's talk more about that outcome and what do we do to make that outcome the more likely one? What was my train of thought? What do we do to make that more likely? I think that there needs to be, for me, the biggest thing, I don't know. I don't actually, I usually have an answer for almost everything. I don't have an answer for this one. I think that we are really close to the finish line. Like I said earlier, I think that there are issues with how does an identity proofing event happen? And then when does the query get initiated and for how long? But at this moment in time, if we don't as a group come together and decide what this workflow looks like, it's going to be predetermined and it's not really gonna work that well. And I agree. I think this is really our time. This, this, what we need to do is we need to come together. We need to come together with the candidate QHINs. We need to come together with the IAS leaders who, who are facing the patients and really try to push this forward. You know, we said on stage in DC with Mickey that all of the candidate QHIN want to be live this calendar year. The gun has been fired. And I think we are, we're now in a race. And, and I think that there's going to be a lot of attention on this right now. And I think this is the chance for all of, for the companies represented here, you mentioned some others, Jen, to really come together and say, let's push on this. Let's push on this balloon and see how far we can get it. What I think is helpful is people like Devin and Jill from B. I, they always they know the law, they read the law, they understand the law. Having people like that and more people like that in the room, I think would be helpful. I think that I wanna see where we can get the document-based query as close as we can to a fire workflow, not from a technical perspective, but from a user experience perspective. That to me is very important because it shouldn't matter if you're using credentials or your demographics to query, it should feel the same on either end to a consumer. That's really important to, I think, getting large scale adoption. I think that there is a fear that IAS will be abused at scale and could potentially even bog down the, the responding gateways. So I think that's why people are trying to figure out ways to gate it and gating it makes it prescriptive and that is what is not good for users. Yeah, I think there, I mean, it's not like the abuse threat is a, is not a reality. If we think about the number of way of creative ways people have le tried to leverage the treatment use case yeah. in order to get data through these networks, the same thing is going to happen on the individual access side. And actually the piece that is really of great concern to me is if you define individual access to me, not just the ability of a patient to get data for themselves, either acting on their own or through an app that helps them to organize their data, but is actually about, oh, the patient said that they wanted me to have this data, right? The patient authorized to a completely different third party, like an insurance company, like a malpractice attorney. That is where, oh, we just need the patient's consent. I have heard people say this. It will be easier and frankly cheaper because of the cost, the limitations on fees being charged for individual access. If we just put our request, just ask the patient to go get it for us. And then it'll come to us and all of a sudden this individual access pathway, which I have always thought was designed to allow patients to get their data for their use, if they then want to share it with an insurance company, with a lawyer, with a friend, they want to put it, wallpaper their house with it, they can do whatever they want to with it. But if there's no other benefit going to the patient other than, oh, I signed my name on some piece of paper in order to authorize it to go to this third party, 
it's not individual access in my view. And you will have a boatload of abuse where you've got these third parties claiming that they had the patient's authorization, but how are we going to prove all of that in, in that kind of a workflow? So I say that the potential for abuse is there, but I think it is one that we can deal with and that we should deal with so that we are able to create those pathways. And I think is appreciate the shout out on regulatory expertise, but there are some holes in those rules that will also be enormously helpful for the different HS agencies involved to fill so that we don't leave those uncertainties on the table and create wiggle doubts for people and Lee and end up at the end of this year with without having made progress in some of these other use cases, individual access in particular, because there's we continue to swirl around some of I these. I feel a little bit differently about this than you do. Okay. And my opinion has changed, I think, over the years. I think I was very focused on We, I used to say my little elevator pitch for one record was one record is a digital health company that empowers consumers to access, aggregate, and share their healthcare data with the people and organizations that they trust. That was like my spiel as soon as if I had to introduce one record. And I think it started with people and then I added that and organizations. And I actually believe that a lot more now because from our user base, we had so many people coming through trying to do administrative things with their data. And I worry with that kind of thought that then it would be, it would say, you should, if I, as a user want to go get my data for life insurance, I'm of the mm -hmm. age, I should have life insurance. I should be able to use my data yes. to go get life insurance. And I, or if I want to join a clinical trial, those are the two organiz, those are the two big use cases that are outside the circle of trust of covered entity to covered entity exchange. Now patients are part of that. It used to just be provider to provider, payer to provider would love to be in there. Now patients are part of the loop. And I think if we fear that the administrative use cases that are going to be used for data, we're going to lock patients out. I do think there are bad actors. And I wonder, nobody's listening to this and none of you on the call probably go through this, but in order for people to join care quality right now, there is this, um, as a a sub participant, we'll use Tefka language. There's this like, giant form that you have to fill out and you have to prove your use case and you have to show insurance and certificate of good standing and all of these things. I think that the way you protect individual access and consumers is not just everybody gets to join Tefka in the early years. There has to be a vetting process for participants and sub participants. And I know Brendan likes to talk about this the rise of the on-ramps, I think the on-ramps could be actually are the ones who, there's going to be need to be a lot more pressure on them to make sure that their organizations that they're onboarding are not bad actors and aren't going to abuse the use case. And then who's the policing of this? I would hate to say that you can't build consumer-based workflows because you're afraid of the downstream request or if somebody had actually gotten that authorization. And we've already seen people abusing patient access. Yeah, that's totally fair. But we just have to build in a way to assure that in fact, the patient really did authorize that transaction. That's, yeah. But isn't that when the identity proofing event happens? Like they can't fake the identity proofing event. Yeah, that's a good point. Like you that's can't, point. it's literally going to be MFA, selfie, phone, like you can't fake that. There are ways that people go get data right now that are way easier with a HIPAA authorization form. The identity proofing event is already such a hard user experience to get through. I cannot get into my IRS account virtually, and I would like to see what's in there. Yeah. I, I, I signed up for every MyCharge in America. <laughs> As part of doing so, many of them have identity proofing. And so I got very yeah. familiar with the questions. Like I think I've had them all written That's down. Every, every single one that Experian had. And still, like 30% of the time, I would fill out the exact right answers, validated my credit score, all that stuff. And it would kick me back and say, nope, sorry. And it was immensely frustrating. Me, a highly technical user who did it 50, 60, 70 times, couldn't get through because it's just a, bro it's a broken system. So like, I didn't prove And that's the old workflow. Yeah. The PBB isn't even what we're, uh, knowledge-based verification isn't even what we're going to be using for us. It's 
it's a much higher level. It's much more difficult. And those services are relatively new. So yeah, I just, I don't think that you can fake. I mean, we have to watch this, but like it's IAL2 is going to be much harder than KBB. And that's where I think it protects it. Can I, I take this back for a sec? Because Devin and Jen, you guys disagreed on something that I think is really fundamental to this discussion. Devin, you wanted to draw a bright line between individual access just to the individual, and then they can do what they want with it based on their technical know-how versus individual access as a methodology for patient-directed and approved yeah. access. And I can see coming down on either side of that argument, but it's, are we just going to agree to disagree that there's two ways to approach this? No, I was even softening on that too. I see Jen's point. And I wasn't, I actually wasn't thinking about the, the identity proofing workflows being a way to pressure test whether in fact this request is coming from the individual. Because at some point they have to be ID proofed. We do them through the, we do the ID proofing through our app as opposed to having, telling the individual, go get your credentials from somewhere. I think there are going to be a variety of models about how this is going to get done, but that is one way we could come up with other standards around around consent to for that query that shouldn't actually be that hard some of the things that you that some of the advantages that you get through consumer access through a fire connection around id proofing and consent we just need to think about how do you replicate that in query based exchange but i think it's entirely possible to do and that means you know, we really are putting into the consumer's hands their ability to send the data wherever that they want to. I do believe it helps to vet. I think there's been some doubts under the information blocking rule just how much vetting could happen. We decided in building this gateway that helps connect HIEs to patient-facing apps that we would vet. We would absolutely vet, but vet within a set of parameters to make sure that there's act, you know, somebody who says they're providing individual access actually is providing individual access. In other words, which, which really boils down to, do you have the patient's authorization to be collecting this data? Um, yeah. And Devin, to, to that point, I, I spoke, excuse me, I, I spoke on stage on Monday about the, and in, in other forums already for that matter, about the, one of the benefits of the Tufka ecosystem being that a higher bar, that it is going to have an opportunity for heightened trust, that there is a bit more operational governance in place. And I think, yes, there was some learning from what Care Quality and Commonwealth and others have been experiencing over the past few years. And there certainly was in, in the processes and legal structures that, that we have been designing here at Health Gorilla to be operationalized. And I, I'm pretty confident that we're not alone in that. So I, I do think that there, the common agreements and the implementation of it is going to lead to a different approach and a different level of vetting that occurs for the participants. The, the, there's always you know, no process is ever going to be perfect, right? But there definitely is a conscious effort to raise that bar. And I think that's going to be demanded by this community. Part of why someone might come into Tufka, I think, is because they want to have that higher bar. I think when I think about this from an app perspective, Fire is the freemium and Tufka is the premium. Because you, if you're building an app, like you're going to have to charge for identity proofing. And I have to say the identity proofing vendors, it's IL2 is much more expensive than KBV. KBV was not that expensive to run through. If you implemented that, we didn't since we started. IL2 is a much more expensive workflow and you're gonna see people not opting into Tefka for IAS because there's just gonna be a cost associated to it. You're gonna be cost to your QHIN, cost to build, and then cost for IAL too. So 
it's going to be really high intent people coming into the TEFCA landscape for individual access services. If you want quick and easy, you're going to go the fire route. It's yeah, there's a lot more authing that you have to do, but it's free. I think the worry is just the, the sort of like human centipede of participant on sub-participant on ad nauseum. That's the on-ramp. That, you called out the on-ramps earlier. And I think the worry is that like part of the promise of any on-ramp to any network, regardless of industry, is easier onboarding and better technical standards or like an arbitrage on the technical standards. And so they're going to have this incentive to make things easy and like health girl is one of them, but like a good actor, but the, there's potential for bad actors with those incentives that have to be watched. And I think we talked about the cell phone networks earlier. And if this is the cell phone network, whatever we first describe and put in stone is SMS. And like, that's what gets entrenched and put at scale. It's really hard to change and upgrade a, a network that's ubiquitous in nature like we saw with care quality. So with the identity proofing and things to get it right the first time is so critical because it will be entrenched. It will be stuck with thousands of sites that need to upgrade or change with a policy change and very few levers on a voluntary network to do so necessarily. So that's why the, to what you're saying, the current conversations that are happening within care quality about identity proofing and other e-health is there, Commonwealth there. It's just the conversations, Karen is there, it's just happening in care qualities groups is it's, it can go very wrong, very fast. And people need to be participating in those conversations because there's a small group of people deciding the future of the workflow and it's not taking into account everyone who's gonna utilize it. That's a quote. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Excuse me. We've talked a lot here about IAS and, and done a, a deep dive there, I guess, briefly in the few minutes that, that we have left. What do we think about some of the other non-treatment use cases? I, I, I'm actually somewhat curious, based on, on all of this conversation, if we think that there's some potential for payment and operations to even move ahead of IAS, not necessarily in terms of when they are adopted for TEFCA per se in terms of the policy, but in actual usage and adoption in the TEFCA ecosystem. Jenny, you were shaking your head, so I'll go to you first in, in terms of reacting to that. I think there's two things, right? I'm not tracking this as closely as I used to, but uh, the rumors, the whispers is P&O should be live by the end of the year or let's say if it's not Q4, at least Q1, how many people will be participating? That's a question, same question for TEFCA. I do think payer-to-payer -payer data exchange, if this is a conversation that's happening at the Karen Alliance a lot, is payer-to-payer -payer data exchange was pushed back to 2026. And that will be interesting to see how does that kind of exchange maybe play into the TEFCA landscape. So we have just a couple of years till that deadline. So I don't know, I, I'm optimistic I, about that, but that's less, that's not my wheelhouse. I'm the patient access person. You know, oh, I, I think, oh yeah, go ahead, Stephen. I was just gonna say, it's been since November, I think that the RCE in their monthly meeting talked about the sub-use cases that they were proposing for healthcare operations, for payment, for public health. I have not seen or heard anything else coming since that time, but I know that there, there really has been this kind of slow march towards defining just what those specific use cases are going to be. Do we know more about that? My expectation is that it will take a similar path to where care quality has gone. Perhaps not exactly the same, but similar where the first use case that, that is a, or use cases that are attempted to be carved off, I can very well see being things like prior auth and payer organized care coordination. Those I think are ones where everyone's incentives are largely aligned and there's also relatively little animosity, if you will, or competitive tension between 
the interests of payers and the interests of providers. So from my standpoint, I do expect to see those to be implemented first. I'm curious as to what others think from their perspective. What was presented by Zoe and others back in November was that they were looking at risk management as the healthcare operations use case and risk adjustment as the payment use case, not the things that you just mentioned. Risk management? Yeah. Like what? I actually, I pulled up the slide. Funny you should ask. Population-based activities relating to improving oh. health or reducing healthcare costs. Contact oh. healthcare providers and patients with information about treatment alternatives and related functions that do not include treatment. That's what they called risk management. Yeah, and that, that oh, actually okay. dovetails into what I was referring to as care coordination by more by payers loosely, but it wouldn't have to just be payers who are doing more of those care coordination activities that start to drift a little bit from direct treatment, but are still falling within that category. And of course, risk adjustment is working on the HCC codes and identifying that. One thing I'd love to see, regardless of use case, is reciprocity. And that I know that maybe that's controversial, but there's every single player has something to add to the picture of the patient's care or financial care or whatever. And requiring some level of reciprocity or giving back of data that is uniquely yours enables the network growth. It just it is the network effect. And that to me, even individual access has something potentially just to share back. And it may not be traditional data sets, but it strikes me as something that I've always wanted to be extended beyond treatment, regardless of all the, I think there's a ton of cool use cases, but that strikes me as something. Uh, yeah, I would certainly agree with that, in particular on the individual access front. And I know that there's there, there's been some hesitation historically in Dr. Lane, you can maybe speak a little bit to this in willingness to accept information that is sourced from the patient, which has always been fascinating to me in, in, in the sense that you trust what the patient says when they come in and are sitting in front of you and rattle off the meds that they're taking and things like that. I'm not quite sure why you wouldn't trust information that they provide electronically, but Dr. Lane, any, any thoughts from you on that front? I agree. It's always baffled me. I must say, I've heard this promoted by some of the EHR vendors, the, this notion that they are defending the sanctity of their customers' data by protecting it from the introduction of patient-sourced data. It, it's never made sense to me either, Dave. You're right. When I'm in the room with a patient, I just write down what they tell me. The fact that I was the one with the, key, the fingers on the keyboard doesn't make it any more true than if the patient did it themselves. And interestingly, we have patient fill out forms all the time before visits, after visits, et cetera. And that goes into the chart. But it it's somehow seen as different than a patient just in saying, I want this added to my chart and inserting it directly. Yeah. The other thing that does occur to me that is a, maybe a potential regulatory hurdle around some of the operations use cases is that at least under HIPAA, you there are limits to the ability to share data for all of the categories of operations. It's limited just to the, I think the ones at the top, if you read the definition, the ones that fall under this risk management category that is being talked about that I frankly have not fully explored. But you do end up with a question about you're supposed to have patients in common to be able to share that kind of data for operations purposes, at least from a provider to provider perspective. With health plans, much of what they ask for patient data, the care coordination piece falls under operations and the payment pieces fall under payment. But there, it, there, it, not every piece of healthcare operations can, you can just freely share data. You have to have some way of knowing that person actually is also treating the patient. And whether that's done through some sort of attestation or how that's going to get accomplished, that does occur to me to be one potential hurdle in kind of opening the operations use case through, for TEFCA-based queries. That's actually really, really interesting and selfishly. I'm curious to hear more of your thoughts. 
that said, maybe we can make a note of that for our next time together because we are up on time here. I want to be respectful, obviously, of our great panelists and their time. So really appreciate everyone. Brendan, a huge thanks to, for, to you for stepping in. And thanks, as always, to Stephen, Jennifer, and Devin. Thanks, thanks so everyone. much. Bye, everybody. Bye.